Hello, listeners. Jabir here. Welcome to episode 30 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. First episode of 2018. Happy New Year, by the way, from our team to yours. And I am glad, so glad to have your ears on this one. Our guest today, Dr. Karen Gordon, is all about ears. That's what this episode's about as well. She works at the Hospital for Sick Kids as an audiologist, as a scientist, and director of research in Archie's Cochlear Implant Laboratory. Her lab thinks about how children hear and how the brain adapts and develops when hearing is restored through devices like cochlear implants. So you know what? Stick around because this conversation takes us many places. We spoke a lot about cochlear implants, the different types and causes of hearing loss, and the consequences of that for language and learning. She even walked me through an audiogram, not the kind we posed on Twitter. It's one of the many diagnostic tests audiologists use for identifying hearing thresholds, which are the softest sounds that a person responds to. As always, if you like what you hear, be generous with the love. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Raw Talk Podcast. To subscribe to Raw Talk, go to Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you like to use. And while you're there, give us a review, an honest one. As for the next time you shop on Amazon, support the show by using the click-through link on our website, rawtalkpodcast.com. All right, all right. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Karen Gordon. I want to get into a conversation about audiology and your work, but it would be very remiss of me not to mention the colorful artwork at the lab entrance. And the last time you gave me a tour, you kind of described it for me and the meaning behind it. So for our listeners, can you give them that same pleasure? Sure. Well, the wonderful thing about our lab is that it's located right in the same hallway with the clinical, um, well, the clinicians and where the children are seen. So we're really happy to have the lab there and we wanna make the experience of coming to the lab um, one that's really warm and welcoming to the families and to children with implants. And so we had this wonderful offer um, of, a, of a donation um, and support for the laboratory and with that, there was this idea of creating a mural along that space. So the mural, I hope people will see in the pictures, is this beautiful, colorful place with real child-friendly images of different animals that we use typically in therapy to form the early stages of language learning for children with hearing loss. So um, each animal or object has its own sound. So just like children developing early language, what does the cow say? Moo, what does the pig say? Oink, oink. And even if you only hear certain sounds, you can get the rhythmic difference between those two. And that's how we form these early learning to listen sounds that are attached to objects. And we see that families and their young children will come by the mural and practice. And so they'll say, hey, do you see that snake over there? What does the snake say? S 
what does what does the bunny do? Hop, 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 hop. <laughs> so it's really um, familiar sounds for them and a place that they can come and interact uh, even before they walk through the door of the lab. No, it's fantastic. I, I've got to get a picture before I leave. I know you got one beside the animal of my choice. Absolutely. Um, but let's time travel a bit. You've got quite the eclectic undergraduate background, a mix of biology, physics, zoology, and religious studies. Help me fill in the blanks here. How did, <laughs> how did audiology come into the picture? What prompted you to pursue a master's in audiology? Well, I think one of the great things about my undergraduate degree was the Faculty of Arts and Science here, which is one combined place and you can explore all the different types of interests that you may have. So that was my experience. And at the end of that degree, I had great learning experiences with writing, with history, with the scientific part of the, the science part of the degree. And I was at the same place that many undergraduates are. What do I do with all of this newfound knowledge that I gained from a university degree? So I was really looking for something that was clinically oriented. And audiology came to me. Um, I didn't know anybody who was in the field, but through researching different options, Acoustics was something that was of real interest. It combined my background in physics and this desire to want to do something clinically. And so that's when I started to apply to audiology programs all over. So in fact, my very first day before I had even done one course in audiology, I was in clinic observing. That's what you wanted too. And that's what I wanted. So you knew during your degree that you would want to work with children? No. No? No, it was actually um, kind of a, was not an expected choice for me to come to the hospital for sick children. I had never really had to focus on pediatric audiology, whereas Mm -hmm. some of my classmates knew for sure that's what they wanted to do. But the opportunity was here, and I jumped at the chance to work here Mm -hmm. and what I realized was within three weeks I had found the perfect place for myself just because again the team environment when you're working in a pediatric center is so important and the complexity of the issues that the children and their families are dealing with associated with the hearing loss Mm -hmm. um, were very different from the adult population of who mostly lose their hearing later in life but this the effects of having poor hearing during really sensitive periods in development and that that the consequences of that for language learning were really of huge interest to me Mm -hmm. well let's get technical for a bit i wanted to ask you how do the ears and the brain work together in unison to make sense of sounds Well, our brain takes all of the sensory information we have in the world and has to organize it, process it, make sense of it, and um, help us to respond to it. What our ears do is literally pick up the sound and process it, uh, importantly, 
between the external world into the cochlea. So the cochlea to the primary auditory nerve, and then this we have pathways all the way up through the brainstem into the midbrain to the thalamus and then up to cortex. And that's just describing detection of sound. Beyond that, of course, we want to recognize what sounds we've heard and make meaning from those sounds. And that's where the network of hearing that will require the auditory areas in the temporal lobes as well as other um, association areas and other parts of the brain to become involved. Mm -hmm. And this idea of networks, what that means is that you can have different types of hearing loss. You can you can lose detection or you may lose recognition. So what causes hearing loss to begin with? It's a really good question and we're starting to understand this more and more. But the real issue is mostly in the sensory part in the ears that starts to, uh, that is vulnerable um, to change, whether it be genetic change or environmental effects, uh, viruses or ototoxic medication, those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. We have these. Ototoxic means toxic to the ear? Toxic to the ear. So we can have changes in the cochlea and the sensory cells of the cochlea or in the components that would help those sensory cells actually provide the transmission of information and impulses over to the auditory nerve. So without that communication between these hair cells, these sensory cells in the cochlea to the auditory nerve, we have this gap of information. So we have to get the information to the, to this auditory nerve so that then we can get the rest of the pathway that we just talked about mm-hmm. involved for understanding what, that, what sound has uh, been received. So with that said, I imagine you also have a lot of diagnostic tests, battery of tests, to detect whether or not there's hearing loss. And one of them that I come across is the audiogram. And I would love it if I brought one with me. If we could go through it together, you can kind of describe how you use it, what it measures. So once we get deterioration in somewhere in the ear, could be the external outer ear blocking sound, it could be the middle ear blocking sound, and it could be the, these problems in, in the cochlea um, communication th- from the sensory cells to the auditory nerve. So these kinds of impairments will eventually cause audibility of sound to be deteriorated. Mm -hmm. So what we're measuring in the audiogram is audibility, the sensitivity of one person being tested to sound. So what we do is play um, sounds, whether it be speech or pure tones Mm -hmm. at target frequencies, and we ask, the participant or the the person being tested to tell us when they can hear the sound and we're going to make it softer and softer and softer and we're going to note the softest sound that the person can hear Mm -hmm. okay on the audiogram so this audiogram that you're showing me here is specific to pure tone sounds running all the way from low frequencies at 125 hertz all the way up to higher frequencies, 8,000 hertz. So we have these pure tones at target frequencies, and I would have recorded for each of your ears 
the softest sounds that you could hear at mm. each of those frequencies. In other words, you're hearing thresholds. I see. Okay? I see. And so you can see that those hearing thresholds could be at really soft sounds, this minus 10 decibels, rel that's relative to average normal, all the way up to very loud sounds. On your graph, the loudest is 120 mm -hmm. decibels hearing level. Okay, so what I would like to see for normal hearing are hearing thresholds that are 20 decibels or softer. I see. And what that means is that across the different frequencies, you would be able to hear those sounds softly, but you would have access to all the sounds that are louder than mm. that as well. So what happens with people when they have hearing loss and start to lose sensitivity at some frequencies or at across the whole frequency range that we're testing, you see that that range of hearing starts to become more and more compressed. And we could even be missing, um, if thresholds are poor enough, mm -hmm. they would not have access to normal average conversational levels mm -hmm. like what we're having now. So the audibility and access to average everyday sounds becomes poorer and poorer. Mm -hmm. And you had mentioned this audiogram that I showed you is for pure tones. That's right. And we talked about how in reality, you're not really always hearing pure tones, you're hearing words from sounds and background noise. So are there other tests that you kind of deploy when you have a, a participant or a patient coming in for um, to test their hearing or audibility? Well, if we start with children for a sec, we also want to make sure that they're responding across the speech, uh, across this range of pure tones in terms of speech. Just mm -hmm. how do they, they detect speech? Okay, so that's a first pass of do you recognize speech and how softly can you hear speech? Two, we want to see whether um, once a child is able to perform a, a task of speech perception, whether, for example, they can hear a word and choose it from a set of pictures or whether they can repeat back the word because that tells us, yep, they are able to take all these pure tones, put them together into speech sounds, and actually those speech sounds are forming a word that they can recognize and respond to. For sure. So you graduated with your degree, you practiced for a few years at SickKids, but then you decided to pursue a doctoral degree. What made you come to that decision? What, what motivations were behind that? Was that plan A? Is that what? Because for a lot of people, it's a tough decision to make going from a practice and going into research. Did your audiology education kind of prepare you for what you were getting into? Oh, that's a good, good question. I think that my undergraduate education as well as my clinical education and my experience as an audiologist for a number of years helped me to make that decision. What I saw here at the hospital for sick children in particular was an opportunity not only to provide the best standard of care that we could in terms of intervening um, and treating hearing loss, but to try to lead the field and look for different ways of doing things. So instead of going into the literature to find out what would be the best thing, I thought 
some some of the questions that we were asking about the limitations of hearing aids, for example, for treating children with hearing loss, mm-hmm. just hadn't been answered yet. And that was a really important part of my decision to try to answer my own questions mm-hmm. about how to best treat children with hearing loss. At the same time, the cochlear implant program had been formed and I was on that team and that created a whole new wave of questions around the optimal use of this very new technology to treat hearing loss. Because basically at the time and even now, cochlear implants start where hearing aids finish. So what do you mean by that? So What we talked about before is that hearing aids amplify sounds to fit into the dynamic range of hearing that you have. So as the loss, the hearing loss becomes more and more severe to profound, Mm -hmm. that dynamic range becomes very limited. And that reflects the very limited degree of residual hearing that's left in the ear to use. So even though we're providing very, very loud sounds, there's just not sufficient residua in the cochlea to actually transmit that information over to the auditory system. So the cochlear implant bypasses that impaired ear and directly stimulates the auditory nerve with electrical pulses. So going back to the question, which was why why did I want to get involved in in research in this kind of area is that there was so much to learn about how children were acquiring hearing and speech and language development with this new device. Mm -hmm. Hey everyone, it's Maria. And on today's segment, we have a special guest joining us, Noah. Noah is actually one of Dr. Gordon's patients. And during our conversation, he shares with us how he first got to know Dr. Gordon and his personal experience on how it is like to live with two cochlear implants. Noah, thank you for coming. It's my pleasure. Wonderful. So to get started, I wanted to ask you a bit about how you know Dr. Karen Gordon. Dr. Gordon just sort of showed up in my life. You know, she was there since I was born, really, ever since they mm-hmm. found out I was deaf. I was always in her lab. She she always used to do the tests on me, and she she always brought me in for the um the experiments. Mm-hmm. and research. So can you tell me a bit about kind of what type of hearing loss you have? I have permanent hearing loss, mm-hmm. no hearing in both ears. Mm-hmm. It's in my cochlea. That's where it's wrong. I don't really know exactly what's wrong with it. So I have cochlear implants and that basically just repairs, doesn't repair, but it, it replaces what mm-hmm. the damage is in my cochlea and allows me to hear. And when did you get them? How was that process like? Um, I got my first one when I was eight months old. And my second one when I was 17 months old. And I was only allowed to have one because they thought that it was a waste of money and it wasn't necessary Mm -hmm. to have two. And my mom fought for it. And we were going to go overseas and we were going to travel abroad to get Mm -hmm. the other one until we eventually eventually won the fight and we got the second one. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, So there's been a lot of improvements even in your lifetime. Yeah. So... How do the implants work? I know Dr. Gordon kind of talked a bit about them bypassing the hair cells and stimulating the auditory nerve directly. But in terms of like functionality, are there any digital 
advancements or things you can hook up to them? Well, every few years, starting mm-hmm. from the new implant that they're releasing pretty soon, there's a Bluetooth built into it, so mm-hmm. you can stream directly to your implants. Wow. But before that, I just listened to phone calls and everything that I could do without headphones the same way as anybody else would. Mm-hmm. But when I needed headphones, there are these special headphones. I don't really know how they work. I just put them in between my head and my implants over mm-hmm. my ear, and I turn on telecoil, and they work. Wow, that's cool. And are these implants waterproof? Is there different kinds of implants? The implants itself that I'm wearing, mm-hmm. which are the N6s, they aren't waterproof at all. There are inventions almost that can either keep them waterproof or there are other implants that Cochlear gave the opportunity and accessories mm-hmm. that they can be completely waterproof. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was younger, I had to put them in a sealed bag with a bathing cap and wear that swimming, and I hated that. So it almost kind of restricted me from swimming. Yeah. But as I grew older and, well, this year I got the Kanzos and I have the waterproof seals or whatever you want to call them that keep them airtight so I can go swimming with those and it's perfectly fine. But there's limitations when you swim because whenever you jump in, you kind of have to hold them so they don't float away. Mm-hmm. Or when you go deeper, sometimes they'll start to float upwards and you kind of have to hold on to them. So it's not really swimming and it is having a good time, but it's swimming and you need to think about what you're doing before you do it. Mm -hmm. And you need to be really careful so you don't lose them. So you can't just dive in. No, unless you don't wear them at all, which I sometimes do. Right now you have uh, two main areas of focus, research areas of focus, auditory development in children who are deaf and the use of cochlear implants. I wanted to tackle auditory development first. And on your website, there's a sentence that reads, children listen in ways and environment which are unique from adults. What does that mean? Well, we kind of touched on it a little bit before. This idea of talking one-on-one in a quiet environment is really something that adults like to do. And when I started to think about how do children hear and develop in very important stages of their overall development and brain development. I'm thinking about, well, what are they doing during that developmental period? So they're not sitting Mm -hmm. very much. As soon as they can get up and move, they do. And they're also not in situations where it's only one other speaker very often. There are often other family members And then as they get into more group activities, there are many other people around them. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I refer to the children's environments that they're listening in, things like the playground, Mm -hmm. the classroom, as the child's cocktail party. Mm -hmm. And that's because much of the research done in adults um, looking at difficult listening environments came from thinking about how we communicate in a cocktail party. Mm -hmm. So when you asked me about how children are different, I love this idea of the child's cocktail party as a playground because it is so different from that of an adult. Mm -hmm. It's far more dynamic, children are moving around. It's far more frequent, Mm -hmm. right? Because there are, everybody's moving, Mm -hmm. even the listener is moving. And there may be many more targets that um, at once that the child wants to listen to. And that to me is one another reason why we really have to make sure that we're giving children appropriate spatial hearing. Mm-hmm. 
And one of the things that has come out of your interest there was the idea of early intervention. When once you identify that there is impaired hearing, how important it is to have an early intervention, whether it's using a hearing aid and ultimately leading to a cochlear implantation. Could you touch upon that and describe, I guess give the listeners some context? Sure. The developing brain uses the senses it has available to it. So if you have no hearing, the child will learn to develop without that hearing, and the brain will reorganize to use those other senses, which is appropriate. child has to um, interact with others around them and also to navigate in their world. The problem is for us when we want to recover hearing. Why would we want to recover hearing? Well, it's part of our oral communication, so it provides the foundation for understanding oral speech and language. And as we talked about, for navigating through the world to understand where sounds are around you. So if we want to recover hearing, we're going to need to do it before that reorganization sets in. So identifying hearing loss at birth is key. And fortunately for us in Ontario, we have a universal infant um, hearing program, which will do that for all, for all babies born, we will be able to test their hearing and identify whether they have hearing loss. Then the question is, well, what do we need to do about it once yeah. we've identified these children? And that for us in the lab has been a question about providing audibility has been great. Um, it's an important part of it. And providing that audibility in the best way using the most appropriate device is really key. So if there, if the hearing is too severe or profound for hearing loss, we need to move toward looking at a cochlear implant. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we want to recognize is that each ear has to be considered. So a lot of our research has been looking at whether one ear listening is enough. So we have to remember that sometimes for surgical decisions and because implantation was new, that we were only treating one of two profoundly deaf ears with a cochlear implant, and that left the other ear deprived. Mm -hmm. And we've seen the consequences of that through our research. The question is then, could we then later recover hearing from the deprived ear? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, it's a lot more difficult the longer that we wait. So what's the critical period um, that has come out of this research? Have you guys identified? So what we have recommended is rather than calling a critical period is simply when we have a child identified with hearing loss that we provide the most appropriate device in each ear as mm -hmm. soon as we can. And we have to remember that there are children who have unilateral hearing loss, so there is only hearing loss in one side. And so when we choose not to intervene in the impaired ear, we're also giving the brain a chance to gain that oral preference mm -hmm. to the one hearing ear or the better hearing ear. I wanted to really ask, and I'm sure a lot of people are curious about this, how is everyday like living with an implant? I know you've had these since you were a tiny, tiny baby, so you don't know anything else, but what is your day like in regards to like school and your social life? 
well, I wake up and then I put my implants on. So I wake mm-hmm. up deaf and then I put them on and then just the world turns on and I go to school. It's just fine like everything else. Mm-hmm. And I don't really worry about it unless one of them dies, which sometimes they do. It's just wearing something on your ear that'll mm-hmm. help you hear. The only time it's really a struggle is at night when I'm with my friends and they die early because I put them on early in the morning. How long do they last? It depends because some of the batteries, they're newer and they, they're fresher and they work better. But some mm-hmm. of them are, are older and they don't work as well. So sometimes they'll die five hours into the day, but sometimes they'll go past 15 hours. So it kind of, it takes a little bit of uh, organization, I guess. Yeah. You kind of have to plan your day ahead of time. Yeah. What about in school? Uh, do, you, do you find that listening to the teacher, sometimes it's more difficult because you know, um, in school it's kind of like go go go. There's no, there's some breaks, but it's there's a lot on your plate right now. Uh, do you find it's a little bit more difficult? I know you said sometimes it takes more effort to listen. People have always told me that I should be wearing an FM system to help me mm-hmm. listen to the teacher, mm-hmm. and I hate the FM system because I don't think it does anything for me. But for some people it does, mm-hmm. and I don't find it that hard to listen to the teacher, even though people always tell me it. For me, it's harder. Mm-hmm. But I know there's never really been any struggles. Mm-hmm. It's just at the end of the day, I'm more tired than the average yeah. kid because there's more effort that goes into listening. Yeah, you really have to focus. Yeah. In terms of the effort, I know that's that's a huge thing. How long do you, or like how many breaks do you have to take throughout the day, would you say? Like, how do you take a break even? At school, well, mm-hmm. in the morning after two hours of learning, we have a 10-minute break. And then after lunch and after two more hours of learning we have a five minute break so those those are the breaks that are given to me but sometimes it's not that the effort it's just I want to get out of class you're just over it by that time so I'll say can I go to the washroom and I'll Mm -hmm. just leave and I'll just walk around and I'll come back yeah no is there any instance where you actually take off your implants um whenever I don't need them I find that I don't like putting them on there's a comparison when you wake up in the morning and the lights turn on and you have trouble adjusting with your eyes and it hurts. Same thing kind of goes when you put the implants on for the first time. It's discomforting because the sounds sound kind of weird and like they're really loud in your head and it's... Is it high pitched? It's not high pitched. It's just your, it's just the brain isn't used mm-hmm. to it. So it's, it's kind of a shocker. And then mm-hmm. you get used to it after five minutes, I would say. But I also like not putting them on because it's a good silence that I like in the morning and it's sort of comforting that I don't need to listen to anything and that I can just relax and literally do nothing. How long do you uh, stay without your implants? How long do those periods last? I don't take them on and off during the day. I wear them whenever I need to. And whenever somebody has the urge to talk to me, that's when I put them on. But it's not like I come home from school and take them off and don't put them on for the rest of the night. I'll take them off at like 10 o'clock after I'm done showering and then I, I won't put them back on, but definitely they're on for the vast majority of the day. Mm-hmm. And where are we at in terms of this technology that we can start localizing sounds? Because, it, again, it relies on the fact of having two good ears. Is that, is that in the works, or where, where do we stand right now? So I think we're still working on it is the short answer. Mm-hmm. The longer answer is, I think, what we're doing by giving bilateral implants to children who are candidates for those without delay is we're allowing the 
auditory system to develop from both ears. Mm. So we're, we're giving the chance for each ear to be balanced in terms of development and access to sound. Mm-hmm. So now that we have those bilateral pathways developed, then we can start asking an important question, which is, how do those two ears actually integrate within the auditory system? And it's amazing how well our auditory system does this normally. And I asked you the question, you know, which ear are you listening to me in right now? And most people with normal hearing can't tell the difference Mm -hmm. because your auditory system is so good at taking the input that's from the left ear that's actually completely different than the input from your right ear. Or it's not completely different. It's separate from the input in your right and integrating them beautifully uh, to detect interaural timing and level differences and to get one fused image. Mm -hmm. So we don't have that integration completely figured out when we give two totally separate devices in each ear Mm -hmm. that don't communicate with each other and maybe doing slightly different things. So what we think and we're working on now is that we need to be able to provide binaural input, bilateral input that is accurate and consistent because the developing brain really needs that. Um, So we want to make sure that if a sound is over to one side, it actually sounds Sounds like like it's over to one side when the children are using two implants. Definitely there's a benefit of that bilateral development that we've seen over listening with one ear. That's clear. But we could probably get even more benefits if we could get this true integration between Mm -hmm. the two ears and promote true binaural hearing rather than bilateral hearing, just sound coming to both ears. Okay, yeah, that would be exciting. (laughs) Um, Something else that you cover is, in terms of the hearing aids, what makes a a good hearing aid user or the factors that contribute to someone's ability to use the hearing aid or the cochlear implantation effectively. And one of the things that struck me, we, we don't have time to go through all the all the factors, but I'd love if you can touch on just the general categories. And and specifically speaking on listening effort, how do you assess listening effort as a factor? Such a good question. So we talked about so many ways that we assess impairments in listening. Um, And one of the ways that we do that is just by audibility of sounds, either in quiet or in noise or the recognition of sounds, and we measure that in accuracy. But that accuracy could come with a huge amount of effort. And so what we've tried to look at with respect to the effort involved in getting good accuracy Mm -hmm. of speech perception is certain measures like reaction time. How long does Mm -hmm. it take for these children to give us an answer? And we can also measure pupil dilation, Mm -hmm. um, which tells us about the task difficulty. Mm -hmm. Um, And we can also see effects cortically, where we get recruitment of Mm -hmm. areas in the brain that are uh, associated with attention. I see. I can imagine how exhausting it could be, because you're reading reading lips if you can't get every 
sound. So, okay. Well, you're using, as we talked about, if you didn't have hearing, you'd be using all your other senses. So we have to recognize when we give back sound through an auditory device, whether it be a hearing aid or a cochlear implant, we're not perfectly representing or recreating Mm -hmm. the normal hearing ear. And so within that context, then the person, the child, has to use, again, as much information as they need to um, be able to respond in certain situations. Mm -hmm. That's fair. Uh, I don't think we can talk about hearing without talking about language. (laughs) And when it comes to providing hearing aids, and then there's also the cochlear implant, but then there's the two routes of communication. So there's a sign language, or they can actually learn how to speak. How does that decision come about and who's making that decision is it a professional decision is it a decision between the parents and the clinician i'd love to if you well, could talk I about think, that so i i think you raise a really important point when we identify hearing loss at birth the idea is so that we allow or we can we can provide language during early stages of development mm-hmm. and that language can come as you say in different ways Mm -hmm. it can be through a visual manual form of communication or through hearing Mm -hmm. so that is um, a parental decision for the child and we in all cases when a child is identified with hearing loss those options are provided to parents and then they can make the decision as to what language mode they would like to pursue Mm -hmm. but the important thing is that they pursue those early so we don't want to wait in either case do you have any advice for maybe a family that just found out that their kid uh, has to get an implant well i think every family who finds out that their kid is deaf is a huge hit Mm -hmm. and it's pretty scary for them because they don't really know what the future holds for their kid And there have been a few families who have talked to my parents who have asked me if I could talk with them just to give them a little hope so that they could hear me speak and that I'm normal just like all the other kids and their kid has the possibility to do that. So I guess it's a big worry before you know what's going to happen. But if you you have all the right things and you have all the right support, then everything will be just fine. I think that's a huge thing, awareness. I know a lot of people are just unaware of the possibilities and the growth that this kind of field has had. So it's wonderful to kind of hear someone who is wearing these implants, who has two, and sounds just like everyone else. And there's no kind of indication you really can't tell. Yeah. And that's wonderful. It just shows how much progress there's been. Yeah. So, Noah, thank you so much for coming and giving us a real kind of patient perspective on what it is to wear a cochlear implant. And in fact, how it is to wear two cochlear implants. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. We just heard from Noah, who shared his experience on life with bilateral cochlear implants. But are two implants better than one? Are there cases where only one implant is enough? As Dr. Gordon mentioned, the best way to correct hearing loss is to provide the most appropriate device in each ear as soon as possible. So for some children like Noah, this might mean two implants, and for other children, this could mean a hearing aid in one ear and a cochlear implant in the other ear. Now, regardless of the device used, it is important to provide binaural input. 
aka bilateral input that is accurate and consistent with respect to intraoral timing and level cues, so that when sound is present on one side, the perceived location of that sound is accurate. This is particularly important for children because throughout the day, they're faced with many situations where they need to localize sounds for moving targets. The take-home message is that appropriate treatment is individual, independent on the individual characteristics of that child. It is clear today that the brain is highly adaptive and develops when audibility is restored through various devices. And how these changes are reflected in functional hearing is the focus of Dr. Gordon's research. It is remarkable to see the progress in technology over the years and how much more we know today. Now, there's still a lot of gaps in knowledge, and wearing these devices are not without some challenges, as Noah mentioned. But despite all of this, speaking with Noah, we can see that when children have a strong support system and resources, they can surpass expectations. We can see that when intervention is applied early on, a child can fully integrate into a hearing world. Now, back to the main discussion. Would you say this statement is true, that perfect language requires perfect hearing? Or would you say that there's a necessary threshold of hearing that's not affecting your communication in terms of oral communication? You know, it's a great question. The reason I ask that is, for example, for someone who's interested in learning new languages, I, I learn a lot better when I'm hearing the language. I can read it, I can speak it, but there's always different dialects and idiosyncrasies that you can't catch by just reading, right? So I guess that's where the question came up. Could you speak that language if you've not really heard it before or you just can't hear it as well? It's also a good question. And I think about this when I think back to individuals who had severe to profound hearing loss Mm -hmm. when they were using hearing aids, cochlear implants were not available. Mm -hmm. And what we learned from them is that you can develop oral speech and language. Mm -hmm. The production of that language may be different and it will reflect the hearing that um, that person has. And it may have to be supplemented Mm -hmm. with other other information. Yeah like reading and so forth. But I I agree with you that language is so much part. um, Oral communication really relies on our ability to hear Mm -hmm. these differences in speech sounds and even in differences between speech sounds in different languages Mm -hmm. and in different speakers who may have different accents and so forth. Mm -hmm. We know, for example, that those those differences even in the language um, speech sounds become more difficult for us to hear those differences between our own native language speech sounds and those from a different language Mm. the brain becomes so adept at processing the familiar language and it actually in some cases can lose the ability to hear these changes that are not part of our native language. Mm -hmm. Well, I'll wrap it up by asking one last question. What would you say is the best advice you've gotten? Best advice? Well, sometimes, for me, the best advice is to have a great team. Mm -hmm. There's no research that can be done alone. Mm -hmm. It's really um, a, a team effort. 
The other thing sometimes we talk about in the lab is to embrace the butterflies. So when what you really need with these butterflies is just to get them to align <laughs> and form in fly in formation, and that'll help you just approach your next challenging task mm-hmm. head on and as you said go for it yeah well thanks again it's been a pleasure chatting with you dr gordon it's a pleasure chatting with you guys too hey it's me again jabir what'd you think of dr gordon and noah weren't they great i thought so there's a lot more of that good stuff coming up in future episodes of raw talk here's a couple scenes from episode 31 with dr jillian einstein We talk about her transition from art history to systems neuroscience. I said to her, Joyce, you know, we make up these stories about what line and color do and how they influence, you know, our feeling about this picture. But there must be a field that actually studies how people see. This woman actually said to me, yes, there is. It's called neurobiology. It's like it was out of a fortune cookie. And I ask how one can start probing sex differences in their research. The first thing you want to ask yourself is, Do you just want to know if there's sex differences or do you want to know what might cause these sex differences? You can hear about all that and more on the next episode of Raw Talk. So, how can I find out about upcoming episodes? I'm glad you asked. If you go to rawtalkpodcast.com, you'll find the names of each month's guests at the top of our homepage. Click the links to learn more about what they do. And as always, we got the rest covered. Thank you for listening. Raw Talk Podcast is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Raw Talk Podcast. Support the show by using the affiliate link on our site when you shop on Amazon. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. What I saw here at the hospital for sick children in particular was an opportunity not only to provide the best standard of care that we could in terms of intervening um, and treating hearing loss, but to try to lead the field and look for different ways of doing things.